Good morning, this is Mark Steiner. Just a reminder that we are listening to a segment from the Mark Steiner Show archives. Send your thoughts about this show to talk at steinershow.org or tweet me at Mark Steiner. Hello, I'm Mark Steiner. What you just heard for the last hour is a documentary we created here called Free at Last. It's the work of Dr. Ira Berlin and a number of others at the University of Maryland in a project called the Southern Society Project, Freedman and Southern Society Project. It's a fantastic book. I hope you enjoyed this documentary. What's going to come up now in the next hour is your opportunity to talk with Dr. Ira Berlin, professor of history at the University of Maryland and dean there, to talk about the work, what this work meant, how they research it, what it means for today. We have a group of students from Baltimore City Schools listening today. You better call in, folks. I want you to call in. You listen to it. Ask all your questions and to talk with Dr. Ira Berlin, editor of Free at Last. We'll be back with you in just a minute. Hello, I'm Mark Steiner. You heard for the last hour, as I just said, the documentary we produced called Free at Last. It was, uh, enabled, we were unable to do it because we had a grant from the Maryland Humanities Council to produce this. It was originally done uh, at the Columbia Festival for the Arts, where my uh, dear friend, uh, Donald Hicken is creative director and also the head of the School for the Arts Theater faculty, where I work with him. Uh, and they produced a stage performance of this that was very powerful. Then after that, I said, let's tr put this on and use it as a radio documentary here at the station. And we put together the grant and created this and had uh, some good folks here at the station and folks we brought in, some actors and an, an engineer from NPR who was a marvelous engineer. We all put this thing together and made this documentary that you just heard. I hope you enjoyed it. We understand, we hope, and we understand that some students from Baltimore City Public Schools and Baltimore County Public Schools were listening to this uh, documentary at the noon hour, and we'll be hopefully calling in here to ask your questions, hear your comments about what you thought, and hear your questions. My guest to answer those questions here for the next hour is Dr. Ira Berlin. Dr. Ira Berlin is professor of history at the University of Maryland. He is also the Dean of Arts and Humanities at the University of Maryland College Park. And Dr. Berlin was one of the editors on this project that created Free at Last, the project coming out of the Freeman and Southern Society Project at the University of Maryland. And uh, Dr. Berlin, welcome to the Mark Steiner Show. Well, delighted to be here, Mark. I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you, uh, we finally got this together to have you here. To Shane the Leslie Rowland, uh, who is another collaborator on this project, who worked with us on this documentary uh, from Maryland, uh, could not be with us today because she had to go to a funeral in Virginia. Uh, we'll miss her presence here, but we have Ira Berlin, which will be just fine. So join us here to ask any questions you have about the Emancipation Proclamation, the period of the Civil War, what it meant to go from slave to freedom, what it meant in that change, who was Abraham Lincoln, what does it mean for the world we're living in today when historians do this work. So join us here to talk with Dr. Ira Berlin, who edited Free at Last, that we just made into a documentary for radio. Uh, let me, I want to start at the beginning here and just kind of give me a sense of what this whole Freedom and Southern Society project was, why you created it in the first place, what, what moved you to do this? Well, historians are always interested in getting the whole story. And of course, we know we're only going to get a part of the story, but we want as much of that as we possibly can. Generally, the part that we get, uh, we get most easily, is the part which comes from the uh, top of society. Uh, that is, uh, literate people uh, leave letters, uh, presidents uh, leave proclamations, uh, uh, Congress uh, leaves laws, and so on. Uh, we very often hear uh, little or sometimes nothing from the slaves uh, uh, them themselves, uh, from poor people, uh, from poor people uh, uh, generally. Uh, we were interested in the question of emancipation. 
how people went from being slave to being free uh, in this country. That's from the beginning of the American Civil War in 1861. Uh, And we take our story down to the beginning of what is called radical reconstruction in the spring of 1867. And in trying to answer that question, we uh, tripped over an extraordinary uh, a set of letters at the uh, National Archives, uh, hundreds uh, of letters, perhaps uh, several thousand letters, uh, uh, written uh, by uh, slaves and former slaves at the moment of emancipation. To historians, this was an astounding uh, discovery. Uh, there is, in the whole world, Uh, no similar collection of letters uh, which tell uh, of the passage of a people from slave to free, uh, not of uh, Russians uh, serfs uh, from serfdom uh, to uh, freedom, uh, not of uh, slaves in the Caribbean or in Brazil or in other parts of Latin America or various kinds of forced peasantries, also of which uh, collapsed uh, in the uh, in the nineteenth uh, in the nineteenth century. Nowhere in the world do we get the voices of the people who are being free. Uh, telling us uh, about uh, what freedom meant uh, to them. And they tell us uh, in a variety of different uh, guises. Uh, But once we discovered these letters, we knew we were going to step back from uh, our project of writing a history Mm -hmm. of emancipation, a kind of narrative story, the kind where historians go into an archives or a library uh, where we uh, where we uh, rump around uh, a little bit, where we write things down in little note cards or now in uh, uh, kind of notebook uh, computers where we take our notes, uh, where we put them together in a uh, narrative which has uh, a patina of objectivity. What we thought we could do and what we've tried to do is to take these letters and take these letters themselves and put them together, juxtapose them in a way in which it would explain how people got from being slaves to being free, and then what, of course, they thought freedom meant. But where did the letters come from? Who put these things together? Who put them in the archives? How did they end up there? Where did they come from? Well, uh, these letters are uh, are created uh, by uh, this uh, great, uh, great bureaucracy which fights and wins the war. And uh, that is the records of the Union government and the Union army. And, of course, since the winners uh, get the losers' records as a kind of booby prize here, (laughs) uh, the records of the Confederacy are also in the National uh, Archives. Uh, uh, Once the war began, uh, slaves identify uh, with the Union government as the agency of their emancipation. They do this, of course, even before the Union government becomes the agency of their emancipation. And once they do that, they begin writing to whomever they've heard of in authority within uh, the Union uh, hierarchy. Uh, Some write to Abraham Lincoln, uh, some write to uh, the Secretary of War, uh, Edwin Stanton, uh, some write uh, eventually to O.O. Howard, the head of the Freedmen's Bureau, Uh, some write to a second lieutenant who may be stationed in their uh, neighborhood. And they write extraordinary uh, things. For example, a uh, freedman uh, might write, uh, as one did, uh, say, from uh, Biloxi, Mississippi, to Abraham Lincoln, uh, saying, my old master has come in, has kicked down the door to my house, has taken my children, uh, is apprenticing Mm. them at the local uh, justice of the the peace. Uh, I've gone down to the justice of the peace, found out it's my master's uh, brother-in-law. 
uh, and now my children have been taken somewhere and they're working for somebody else. Uh, I need my children for spring planting. Uh, I love my children. I want them back. Uh, I fought in the Union Army. Uh, I don't think this is right. Uh, do something about it. And this may be a person uh, not writing with any precision, mm -hmm. uh, somebody who just learned how to write, or he mm -hmm. may go to his local minister and ask him to write <laughs> the letter uh, for him, and he may send this to Abraham Lincoln. Now, once this uh, letter enters into uh, the federal uh, bureaucracy, uh, all kinds of things happen. Uh, uh, sometimes it will just stop in Lincoln's uh, records, and somebody will mark it file, and that's the end of it, but we have the letter. Uh, sometimes it will be shipped uh, down the chain of command to, to Edward Stanton, the Secretary of War, to O. o. Howard, uh, the Commissioner of the Freedmen's Bureau, to the Commissioner, the Assistant Commissioner <laughs> in Mississippi, right. uh, to some second lieutenant in Biloxi. Uh, at that point, it too can stop at any place along the line, and maybe that second lieutenant will respond. Uh, he can say, uh, yes, this is happening all over the place, uh, but my horse is lame and I can't do anything about it. Uh, no, uh, this man is a notorious liar. Don't believe a word he says. <laughs> uh -huh. uh, or sometimes he will go out. He will take depositions from uh, the former slave, uh, from the former master, from uh, his brother-in-law, from other people in the neighborhood. We will then not simply have the original letter and the original complaint. We'll now know a lot about the circumstance under which this took place and its frequency, its generality, and so on. And upon occasion, Mark, uh, something is actually done about <laughs> done Much about like today. It. Right, exactly. <laughs> I mean, so not much different <coughs> than today. But what we have then is this enormous set of records which is created, and our job at the Freedmen and Southern Society Project that has been in some way to, uh, to, to disentangle these records in a way in which they would be useful for telling how people get from being slave to free, and in the process, of course, telling, as does this slave, uh, former slave in Mississippi, telling us something about his aspirations for freedom, telling us something about his understanding of family life, mm -hmm. telling something about the nature of power relationships uh, you know, in, uh, in that particular area, and uh, a whole variety of other subjects as well. Dr. Ira Berlin, editor of the book Free at Last, a document documentary history of slavery, freedom, and the Civil War, is the book from which we created the documentary you heard in the first hour, Free at Last. We're going to go to the phones so you can talk to Dr. Berlin about this work and have your questions answered or your thoughts to hear what you think about what you've heard and what's going on. Amanda in Baltimore, you're on the air. Hi. Hi, um, Amanda. First of all, I'd like to compliment everyone who participated in making that beautiful program. It was, Thank you. It was very well done. Um, I'm originally from, from Georgia, and I know that often when people hear I'm from Georgia, they say, oh, down in the South where racism is a problem. Mm -hmm. um, and something that I thought that, that, that your show made very clear was that there's racism everywhere, that, that, the un that many unionists were no more in favor of, of helping out black people than Southerners. Um, and, I, and I thought it made very clear that, that ending racism is everyone's responsibility and mm -hmm. is not just a burden of Southerners. Thank you. Now, an incredibly important statement you just made, Amanda. I think that, that, that when you look at it in a historical perspective, that's why history is so important, because it gives us our roots to where all this came from. We don't think it just, some people would just think if they don't know history that, um, or don't study history, that all this was created overnight, that somehow it just popped and reared its ugly head from nowhere. But uh, the, the part that you discovered in your work for people, I think, in terms of, of um, 
of the racism that existed in the North that Amanda was talking about, the racism in the Union Army, um, who Lincoln really was, it was very important for us to learn. Well, uh, we, we think, of course, racism is a long uh, shadow which is cast over this country, uh, you know, right from the, right from the beginning. It uh, certainly is a national problem. It was a national problem in the 19th century, and, of course, it remains very much a concern of all Americans, uh, all Americans uh, today. Uh, I think it's important to understand that for most of our history, uh, slavery is a national institution. It is not a southern institution. Emancipation does not take place in the North, uh, uh, com- finally, until uh, the early part of the 19th century. When it does take place in the North, in large slave states like New York and New Jersey, emancipation is gradual. It's compensated, meaning masters are compensated, not uh, not slaves. Mm-hmm. And because of that gradualism, there continues to be slaves, some say some 10,000 slaves in the North in 1820. Uh, that uh, that is uh, the third decade of the decade of the 19th century. Uh, so that when uh, the Civil War Civil War begins, uh, we have to remember that there is a live memory of slavery being a northern as well as a southern inst- southern institution. I think it's also important to, to understand uh, uh, that uh, free blacks in the North suffered uh, terrible uh, discrimination. Uh, that is, they're prescribed. Uh, uh, from uh, almost uh, every institution, uh, informal institutions, that is, uh, churches, schools, and, and so on. They are legally prescribed uh, from voting in uh, almost every uh, northern uh, state. Uh, and in most northern states, they are prescribed. They're, they're not allowed to sit on juries, very often not allowed to testify against uh, white people. Through the end of the Civil War, we're talking uh, about. Through the end of the Civil War. And many of the Civil War amendments... Uh, which are, of course, a pass to address uh, questions of uh, uh, questions of equity in the South, uh, have an enormous uh, impact in the uh, in the North. Uh, and well, were there slaves held in the North through the end of the Civil War? Did people continue to have slaves until the end of the Civil War? No, so the slavery is finally liquidated, uh, probably mostly in the third decade of the uh, of the nineteenth uh, century. Uh, there are still uh, small pockets uh, of slavery uh, in the, the North, uh, in New Jersey uh, in particular, in, into the 1830s, and probably a handful of slaves because, as I said, this is a gradual liquidation of slavery in the North in the, 18, in the 1840s. Uh, so it's not a viable institution in the North, but I think it's important to understand it is a viable institution in the North uh, right through the 18th century and into the first decades of the 19th century. This is often lost the sight of, and I think has an in, has a very powerful effect on shaping race relations in the uh, North, and of course the enormous burden that the black people uh, who were free, who were slaves in the North, and do get their freedom as a result of that post-revolutionary mm-hmm. emancipation, they are carrying an enormous burden of uh, discrimination. Uh, when you know when the civil war when the civil war begins. Let's go back to the phones. Myra in Baltimore, you're on the air. Uh, good evening. Uh, Hi, I Myra. I was in my car on two ninety five coming into the city when I heard your program, mm-hmm. so I had to hurry in to listen to the rest of it. I <laughs> found it very intriguing. Good. And uh, what my question was, I was wondering, and I think you did answer the uh, the documentary is in book form. 
and I would like to know where it can be purchased. Well, the book can be purchased at most any bookstore. That we sure hope it, so. It, I've I've seen it um, at Bibelot. I've seen it at uh, Borders Books. It's it's around. the The book itself is called Free at Last. Um, it is on the New Press, uh, and it's edited by a number of people. The first name on it is Ira Berlin, who is our who's our guest today. Thank you. So, um, and you can also purchase a copy of that documentary if you want to hear it at home again. Myra, okay. Thank you very much. Appreciate you calling and listening. Join us here to talk with Dr. Ira Berlin about the book, Free at Last, that you just heard a documentary we produced made from this book in the first hour of this program. You students who are listening out there from Baltimore City Public Schools, get to that phone. We'll test you on it later. Just kidding. You're listening to a segment from the Mark Steiner Show archives. Send your thoughts about this show to talk at steinershow.org or tweet me at Mark Steiner. The Mark Steiner Show is brought to you by MeQ, Baltimore's credit union. Offering a full range of financial services, MeQ, Baltimore's credit union, is helping its members and its community prosper. When you invest in yourself, MeQ invests in you. For more information, www.mecu.com. I want to remind you the Mark Steiner Show is brought to you in part by the Maryland State Education Association. From limiting overtesting to protecting public school funding, you can learn more about the issues facing students, parents, and schools by visiting the Maryland State Education Association's website at marylandeducators.org. That's marylandeducators.org. Or at steinershow.org, is the Maryland State Education Association's banner. Um, how do we know, how did you know, how do historians know that these letters were valid on a couple of levels? Um, a, I mean, they were there in the archives, but what you understand, what we think we understand from history, is that slaves didn't know how to read and write. So how did these documents take place? Where did they come from? Well, one of the, one of the things uh, that freedom means uh, to uh, slaves or former slaves, uh, it means uh, gaining control over the word. Uh, slaves, of course, uh, were, uh, for the most part, overwhelmingly uh, prevented uh, from gaining uh, book learning. And indeed, many southern states had laws uh, which said that not only could not slaves uh, be taught to read or write, uh, uh, but free blacks as well in the South, black people who gained their freedom. And, of course, there were some quarter of a million black people living in the slave states who, who, were, who were free. Out of a total population uh, of? A total population of four million slaves, roughly one in, one in 16 uh, black persons was free in the uh, South. Uh, this is a uh, substantial and very important group. But in many states, they too were prescribed uh, from, from reading. Now, with the war, uh, black people come to see that gaining control over the word, learning to read and write is an intimate part of freedom in some way because they understand that control over the word was used against them. That was one of the forces uh, which was used to enslave them. So see this as enormously important. So almost from the beginning of the war, we see black people beginning to form schools. Uh, mm. For example, every black regiment, every black company uh, and uh, almost uh, 200,000 black men fought in the Union Army, uh, has some kind of school, debating society, literary society. Mm -hmm. uh, sometimes they will pool their money, they will hire somebody. Sometimes mm. somebody with just a little book learning uh, will be the teacher of, uh, 
of uh, of the others. Uh, sometimes they will, uh, you know, they will write to a Northern Benevolent Society, the so-called Freedmen Aid Societies, asking them uh, for books, asking them to to form uh, schools. Uh, sometimes these black regiments will uh, pay to form schools in the neighborhood in which they're stationed. <laughs> uh, there's an enormous <laughs> drive uh, for literacy. Uh, many of the letters which you uh, heard read uh, are, which are some of them enormously eloquent. Uh, if you look at them, if you look at the way they're written, uh, are great scrawls. Uh, they are I mean, literally, when you discovered them, right, how they were literally, right, literally written. Exactly. And, and in, in Free at Last, we have a picture of some of those uh, documents to give people a feel of what a letter looks like was written by a person uh, who was probably more comfortable with a plow than they were with a pen. Uh, mm -hmm. Just not familiar with that. Uh, some of these uh, letters, uh, they're all uh, the spelling is all phonetic. Uh, so bureau is spelled B U R O inevitably, uh, probably the way it should be spelled. Uh, <laughs> uh, many of them, uh, you know, uh, do not know the niceties of punctuation, or may have heard of the uh, semicolon, so they put a semicolon after each word. Uh, many of them uh, have not heard of the semicolon. There'll be no punctuation, and this will look like a you know a great blob of uh, great blob of text. Uh, uh, so that in, in terms of the way these letters look, they certainly uh, don't look pretty, but they read pretty, and in some way they read pretty because uh, what we see is uh, an oral society becoming a written society almost at this moment of emancipation. And one of the things that's very important in an oral society uh, is uh, formulations, uh, speaking in phrases uh, which catch people's ear, which are convincing. Uh, uh, we, you know, uh, live in an age of sound bites, uh, right. where everything, uh, words are collapsed, uh, where we're continually collapsing, meeting into shorter and shorter time spans, and it's, you know, it's argued that, uh, you know, that we don't have an attention span of more than three minutes, and then we're off to something else. Uh, the 19th century is an age of great attention spans. People would come out and listen to a political speech uh, mm -hmm. that would make Fidel Castro uh, seem like a piker. Uh, <laughs> uh, people would sit. You and know, he speaks and, for three hours at a time. Exactly. So. Three hours. Uh, yeah. That's easy. <laughs> yeah. I mean, uh, the Lincoln-Douglas uh, uh, debates, uh, people sat there, you know, in the hot sun in, in southern Illinois, uh, you know, uh, all, after, all afternoon listening uh, to uh, people debate. And they were prepared to do this. Uh, they're eager to hear uh, the... Uh, so we see a lot of the formulations we see in these uh, letters are really oral formulations put down on paper, almost literally frozen speech. Uh, and linguistics, are, by the way, uh, linguists are using our letters uh, uh, to try to uncode uh, something of the development of... Uh, of uh, 19th century languages, uh, particularly black uh, black English. And it's interesting because it's almost these are the roots of the great oratory tradition that's in the black community. Right. A lot of time when you know we had this, you heard people on TV last night debating the thing what happened on O.J. Simpson trial mm -hmm. when they were talking about Johnny Cochran saying that he was trying to be a preacher. Well, and if you if but he wasn't. I mean, he was being what he is. And from that oratory tradition that came out of the community, preacher or not. Sure. And I think that's it. Let's go to the phones here. Come, come back. Okay. My guest is Dr. Ira Berlin, editor of the book Free at Last, from which we created the documentary Free at Last. Uh, Adamola from West Baltimore, you're on the air. Peace. Hi, Adamola. How are I you? I respect you. Thank you. I am very pleased that Mr. Berlin has done the work he's done. 
I have long believed that until the African studies what happened during slavery and in the escape from it and in the recovery, we will not have the key to our own power. I'm also intrigued and very, very glad that you just said what you said and to its depth about the African and the word, the transition from oral to written culture mm -hmm. and literacy then. I know from having done much of that research, I know that that was the key for our people. In this society, it was the tool with which a recovery could include being involved in this society, because if you're not going to read in America for a long time, it means you're nothing. Mm -hmm. Now, we move to economics, because it is seen that having a powerful economy will somehow uh, reduce perhaps the effects of racism, and we may, may not suffer social deprivation. I'd like to know, are there any records of how the African was seen as an economic element in the Civil War period and mm -hmm. in Reconstruction? Great question. We were talking a little bit about before the show, Dr. Berlin. Uh, well, of course, that's an extraordinary part of the story. Uh, perhaps in many ways uh, the most important part of the story. That is how you go from a slave economy to a free economy. Uh, there's no question uh, that black people worked as slaves, and in fact their work uh, not only produced a great part of the wealth of the South, uh, supported uh, this uh, slaveholding uh, uh, class, uh, but of course uh, created a great part of the wealth of this uh, nation and was funneled out of the South and was recapitalized in a variety of uh, variety of different, uh, different ways. Uh, the system, of course, which they worked under was a system of uh, coercion and force. Uh, now we have emancipation uh, and we supposedly have the creation of a new system. It's called free labor. But what exactly is free labor? What do we mean by free labor? Does free labor mean uh, that uh, you uh, can't discipline your workers? Uh, does free labor mean uh, that uh, you uh, can't uh, have an overseer or a driver? Uh, does free labor mean uh, that you pay a wage? And what is the nature of uh, that the wage? Is that wage paid once a year? Is that wage paid in kind? Uh, is that uh, wage uh, paid uh, uh, through an exchange, a barter, uh, a barter system? Uh, do do uh, workers uh, have the right to quit any time they want? Uh, and what's the obligation to pay somebody who ups and quits in the middle <clears throat> of the uh, middle of the year? Uh, and a whole variety of a whole variety of questions. Uh, uh, these questions are crucial to the creation of this uh, system, uh, this free labor system. We call it the capitalism uh, today. And the interesting thing, of course, uh, for us uh, uh, who are students of the 19th century, at the very same time that these slaves are being emancipated and this free labor system is being created, being shaped, and all of these questions are being answered, Many northern workers are facing the same question, that is free laborers uh, are facing the same question in the north, the right to quit, the nature of the wage. Uh, uh, all of these questions are uh, at issue. We seem to have think uh, that they're 
that there are questions uh, which, uh, you know, are, are somehow natural or God-given or always been solved, but this is not so. These are questions which were uh, fought out, they were struggled over, and they were answered in a particular way because of the way those struggles uh, took place, having great impact on African-American people, but affecting, deeply affecting all Americans as well, because ultimately this new system of free labor is going to touch everybody's life. This is, you see, I'm very glad then that people, I hope, can see the connection, that racism, because it is a lie, can distract you from the business of living in community. And when race is a factor, it affects everyone who may not even be of that race. Mm -hmm. This empowerment zone effort, I just returned from a board meeting, mm -hmm. and in many ways, they had a presentation from a professor at Harvard who had a theory of including inner cities in the surrounding economies that basically put the inner city residents at the control of outsiders. And they would indeed be brought into the economic system because I'm sure he could work it out. And with the way he presented it, it would be a good business investment. <laughs> but there are people there. And we have always been seen as, as an article to be developed. There would be no development coming from within. There would be a, here's a to develop you. I'm hoping that people can read your book, and we will, as the African Men's Literacy Action, I will recommend Good. that we read this book so that we can know that when we're dealing with these corporate managers today, they have the same attitude as those who were the masters of the, our enslaved grandparents. Adam Muller, we have to go to a break. I, 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 I love it when you call. I appreciate what you've told us today. And, uh, I thank you, discussion. and I thank Mr. Berlin. Thank you very much. Thank you. You're listening to The Mark Steiner Show. My guest is Dr. Ira Berlin, who edited the book Free at Last, a documentary history of slavery, freedom, and the Civil War. It's a book that we created a, a uh, historical documentary for the radio out of this year that you just heard in the first hour. Uh, and you listen to The Mark Steiner Show, and we'll be back in just a moment right after this message. And the next caller is Carrie Adley, so don't hang up. You're coming up next. Hi, this is Mark Steiner. We're talking with Dr. Ira Berlin, the editor of Free at Last, a documentary history of slavery, freedom, and the Civil War that we created this documentary you just heard called Free at Last from. And Carrie Adley from Baltimore, you're on the air. Hi. Hi. I had uh, a question about the um, abolitionists and what the letters revealed. Did they drop the ball as soon as there was abolition, or did many of them do some follow-up? And also, the activities of Sojourner Truth and Harriet Tubman, I know that they were very active after the Civil War. And did any of the letters make reference to them? You know, did you find any traces of where they tried to get... I know that Harriet Tubman was very active in trying to get um, soldiers' pay and retirement pay and such. And um, I just wondered if any of those documents, you know, came across reference to these two women or to abolitionists, you know, to their favor or mm -hmm. to their disfavor. Mm -hmm. Uh, yes, there are many references uh, to abolitionists, uh, generally the work of uh, abolitionists uh, uh, during the war and after, uh, after the war, which takes a whole variety of uh, different forms and occasionally some references uh, to uh, Tubman uh, as, uh, as well. Uh, in this particular uh, volume, one of the places where uh, abolitionists uh, show up playing a large, uh, a large role, of course, are officers uh, in the uh, of black regiments. Uh, 
black regiments were formed. Mm. Uh, they were not uh, permitted to have uh, black officers. Uh, and uh, of the white officers, of the whites who come to officer those regiments, particularly during the early years of the war, abolitionists, uh, white abolitionists, uh, loom very uh, large, uh, taking upon it uh, themselves as a real honor uh, to uh, lead uh, black uh, soldiers. Many of you uh, may have seen uh, the uh, movie uh, Glory, right. uh, 54th Regiment, and uh, uh, the uh, role of uh, white officers, uh, Shaw in particular, in uh, leading uh, that uh, leading that uh, that regiment. Uh, uh, they take they uh, whereas uh, they're very often uh, denominated and ridiculed as nigger officers. Uh, they really glory uh, in uh, that role and see this as the kind of crowning achievement of the abolitionist uh, movement. Uh, after the war, of course, uh, many abolitionists are involved in what we would today call civil rights uh, organizations. They take a variety of uh, different uh, forms, and of course, uh, uh, in the post. Uh, uh, post-emancipation world, uh, perhaps the largest uh, civil rights organization was itself the Republican Party, mm -hmm. uh, playing a somewhat different role than it plays uh, than it plays uh, today. But being uh, the party uh, of uh, Abraham Lincoln in the uh, greatest uh, sense, uh, meaning the party of emancipation uh, against the Democratic Party, which was seen as the party of uh, the Confederacy, the party of the uh, party of the South. Uh, so abolitionists, uh, abolitionists certainly uh, don't disappear, uh, and uh, they certainly do appear in free at uh, free at last. Thank you very much, Gary. I'm glad you yeah. called. Thank you. Appreciate it. Talk with Dr. Ira Berlin here on the Mark Steiner Show about the book Free at Last, that he was a lead editor on, uh, and where we created with the documentary you heard earlier was created from the work in this book Free at Last. You students are listening. Don't be shy. Call. Well, I want you to know that students at the University of Maryland are not shy. Uh, they, they, <laughs> they, they call in all they call in all the time <laughs> and uh, uh, I invite uh, students who are what, in uh, various high schools yeah, the high, high schools, schools yeah well uh, that they might not be shy and then they can come down to the University of Maryland and particularly not be shy at all <laughs> no one is shy <laughs> uh, this period of the Emancipation Proclamation um, I wish you'd talk for a minute about what was discovered in this book a about well, it wasn't discovered just here, but that we know about from the Emancipation Proclamation about the slaves that were liberated and were not, and the role of Lincoln as the reluctant emancipator. Uh, the argument of this uh, book, uh, and in some way uh, the question that we're most interested in is, is agency. Uh, that is the role of the people. In this case, the role of uh, slaves themselves. Uh, uh, here we have a situation in which uh, people who have uh, no political power, they have no uh, uh, voice in uh, politics, uh, they have no weapons of war, as one of the callers earlier uh, noted. Uh, they were largely illiterate and uneducated. Uh, uh, yet uh, when the Civil War begins, they know, uh, they know that this is their moment. Mm -hmm. uh, they know that this is their opportunity, uh, that this is their opportunity to gain their freedom, to transform their place in American society, to transform American society. Uh, and they begin to push for emancipation almost from the beginning of the war, indeed, and sometimes before the war begins, when only rumors of war uh, appear. 
On the other hand, everybody with power in American society, from Abraham Lincoln down, uh, at the beginning of the uh, Civil War, uh, says that this is not a war about slavery. Uh, this is a war over union. Mm -hmm. uh, this is not a war for black people. This is a war between uh, white people. We'll settle this matter uh, between ourselves. Uh, uh, we uh, may settle this political question one way or another, but we're not going to change the social structure of American society. We're certainly not going to affect uh, the institution of chattel, uh, of chattel bondage. Uh, uh, when we take a look at what happens by the end of the war, we see that the people who had no power prevailed. And the people who had power now are running fast uh, to get up to the front <laughs> of the parade and declare themselves emancipators. And, of course, Abraham Lincoln himself becomes uh, 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 covered uh, by the, uh, uh, the title, the mantle of the great, uh, the great emancipator, and has remained uh, so ever, you know, ever, ever since. One of the things that we're interested in is this process of how people with no power, with no authority, with no standing, get their way. Mm -hmm. And how people with power run fast to catch up and eventually adopt uh, this, uh, this, you know, this this policy. We think that this is not a particularly uh, anomalous uh, circumstance. We think it happens uh, all the uh, all the time uh, because uh, people understand what they want, and at various moments when they see they have their chance to get what they want, they're willing to take enormous risks for it. And in some measure, what Free at Last is about is about exactly the process by which people with no power transform themselves in this great revolutionary moment, which we call the American Civil War, transform themselves to people who are extraordinarily, uh, extraordinarily powerful. And that's part of what you, I mean, you, as a historian, you see as part of a, um, uh, the American democracy, the tradition of democracy in America, has to do with the people leading people making the moves so that changes happen in society doesn't always come from the top right. as we always say. Like, we're the leaders, we're always saying, but you're saying that is not, that is not right. our tradition, really. That, that's right. Our tradition is that the great sources of change in our society from the very beginning, the American Revolution, the American Civil War, the populist movement, the, the union movements, the progressive movement, the, the movements for social change during the New Deal, certainly the civil rights mm -hmm. movement. These are movements which ultimately come from the bottom of society. They, at various moments, produce great leaders. And we have seen that in our own time. But those leaders uh, can only exist and can only be produced by the social movements themselves. What we're interested in is the agency of the people. And we think, of course, uh, uh, in not coincidentally, this has, of course, a great deal to do with our own politics uh, today because this is so much a part of our uh, social of our social tradition of how we create the social change in society. Uh, I think you know throughout our history, there's a, another refrain. You know, why doesn't somebody step up? Right. Where are our, our right. leaders? If we only had the right leader, then things would be different. If only things were as they were then, for my parents or my grandparents or for my great grandparents, when somehow giants roamed the earth. <laughs> uh, well, it turns out giants never roamed the earth. It was only the only folks out there were us. 
And uh, if we want social change, as indeed the slaves, you know, the slaves did, they understood what they wanted. You have to take that moment and transform it, uh, you know, transform it for yourself. It seems the giants me, were rooted in the social right. swell of the moment. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Dr. Ira Berlin is the voice you heard. He's the editor of Free at Last, the book that documents the history of slavery, freedom, and the Civil War that we created the documentary from. Uh, there are many things to be said uh, to uh, Lincoln's uh, credit. Uh, that is, he understands uh, the role uh, that black uh, people are playing. Uh, uh, he may not understand it as fast as black people themselves would like him to understand it. He may not understand it as fast as uh, the abolitionists uh, 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 would like him to understand it, but eventually he gets the he gets the point. Uh, and once he does get it, once he becomes committed to uh, emancipation, uh, his uh, commitment uh, becomes a, a full one. Uh, even in 1864, uh, when the war again goes badly uh, for the uh, North, uh, when his own reelection is uh, in doubt, uh, he refuses. Uh, says, "I will be damned in hell forever." If I would uh, take back the emancipation, he makes his commitment. Uh, he makes his commitment clear, uh, so that Lincoln does figure it out. I think my point uh, here, uh, without uh, simplifying, but then trying to uh, wrap up here, is to say that there is a relationship between constituted authority in the person of Abraham Lincoln and the actions of the people, a complementary relationship. I'd like to think that both of them are important in understanding how emancipation takes place. I'm sorry, we have to end here, Dr. Berlin, but Dr. Ira Berlin, editor of Free at Last, the, from which we made that documentary you heard earlier. Dr. Berlin, thank you. This has been a fascinating discussion. Sorry we couldn't take any more calls. Get the book, Free at Last. You'll enjoy it. Have a wonderful weekend. Talk to you on Monday. Bye-bye. <laughs>